This is Kanzen Shu, the podcast, episode 456, for the week of October 28th, 2018. Welcome to Kanzen Shu. The podcast? The podcast about anything and anything. No. 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 An extension of the all-encompassing Dragon Ball fan site, Kanzenshu. We cover anything and everything Dragon Ball in hopes of enlightening and a little bit of entertaining. I see I have job security here. I'm the only one who remembers how the show opens. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll get it right next time. All right. Uh, my name is Mike Vegito EX. That is Julian over there, uh, sticking around a little bit, recording some extra podcast stuff post-New York Comic Con. We're going to do a follow-up here. Previously on episode 444 of our podcast, we dove into the 30th anniversary book, and uh, Julian, you read through two game interviews. Uh, There's a a series of five. We previously talked about the first two there, talking about the Famicom and the Super Famicom era of Dragon Ball video games. Uh, There are really cool tidbits in there. We learned about uh, some of the production woes in the Super Butonen days. Uh, Toriyama couldn't do the special moves. We learned about Koyama's involvement with uh, uh, Plan to Eradicate the Science, even the original Famicom version, which he wrote. Very cool stuff. It was some interesting light on the early days of Dragon Ball video games. And it's no surprise then that uh, there's some interesting tidbits in the later generation stuff, starting with the 2000s. Mm-hmm. So that's what's on deck this episode. We're going to wrap up that series of uh, five special Dragon Ball producer, director, game interviews. Uh, we're going to start there in the PS2 generation and go onward. That's our episode this week, so let's jump right on into our topic. Let's start with Dragon Ball Z Budokai. Julian, we got a big name here, Daisuke Uchiyama. Yes, he's an executive producer at Bandai Namco Entertainment, and he's uh, produced a fair number of games in his time, including the, some uh, some of the Dot Hack series, and also uh, what is it, Naruto Naruto Hero, and I don't yes. know what that's called in English. I but think, I think that's it's something Ultimate else. Ninja Storm or Ninja Storm something over here. But anyway, he's uh, one of the biggest people at the company. Yeah, he's, he's been very doing important. games for years. Yep. So they're talking about uh, the Dragon Ball Z series, which is known in the English speaking world as the Budokai series mm-hmm. or Budokai series <laughs> and uh, talking about how it came that to be that they had this uh, fighting game. So um, it all actually goes all the way back to uh, even before the PlayStation 2 was released. So he talks at first about how after uh, Dragon Ball GT ended in 1997, there was this sort of uh, fallow period for Dragon Ball games. Um, and then finally around 2000, um, they decided, well, maybe they could do a Dragon Ball Z game for the upcoming PlayStation 2, which hadn't come out yet. Right. I don't remember exactly when it came out. Uh, the PS2 came out March 2000 in Japan. Okay. So it was really early on. Even before it came out, they were planning on doing a game for the PlayStation 2. And uh, after all, if you have new hardware, you need games that are worthwhile to play on it. Right. And um, if uh, Bandai was to get involved with the PlayStation 2, then they really wanted to do Dragon Ball. Hmm. Um, hey, so, you know what? Let's just set the stage for Dragon Ball video games at this point because uh, you mentioned GT ended in 97. Well, Final Bout was 97. That was kind of it for a few years. So while we did ultimately get uh, Dragon Ball Z Budokai, uh, November 2002 Europe, December 2002 North America, February 2003 Japan, uh, the release dates were very staggered at that point. Uh, the revival of Dragon Ball games actually started 
on the handheld front. A little bit earlier that year, May 2002, Dragon Ball Z collectible card game over here in America. And then June 2002, August 2002, November 2002, different regions, Legendary Super Warriors on Game Boy Color. So the handheld market was right alongside there, uh, no doubt fueled by the North American broadcast of the English dub over here. Oh, I'm sure. But, uh, of course, the um, the console market, there was pretty much nothing. Right, and the PS2 was going to explode. I mean, it's still the, I believe it's still the best-selling console of all time, and it's probably not going to be touched at this point. Wow. Um, so, I mean, it was just getting started over there, but coming off of the uh, success of the original PlayStation, it's no surprise that Bandai's looking at the successor going, all right, we got this major franchise over here. It's been a few years. Time seems right. Yeah, and they're, they're talking about how they... Um, they thought they would probably manage to get a lot of sales through uh, nostalgia demand mm. because at that point, the people who grew up with the series were getting into the point where they were, you know, coming of age and having disposable, disposable income. income yep. um, so they had that uh, their eye on that as well. Okay. And um, the development for the PlayStation 2, especially early on, was slow going because the development environment was not uh, a thing yet, basically. Mm. So they were basically making the 3D models from scratch and is very much uh, trial and error. Uh, and the, as a result, the schedule just kept slipping and slipping until eventually it was released in 2003. Well, the, yeah, the Japanese release. Uh, so for a while, the games here, the all three in the original Budokai series, they were, really, they were released in the West first and the Japanese release followed uh, a couple months later, sometimes uh, even longer than that. People don't, I don't think, realize anymore uh, something like Fighters, where it's basically within a week worldwide. Back then, it could be a month between Europe and America, and then maybe two months between that and the Japanese release. These were a little staggered. Yeah, and so it's interesting, though, that the, their original plan for Japan was uh, the summer of 2002. Yeah. But as a result of that, they actually felt like it, was a better product because okay. uh, they did a lot of work on the uh, 3D character models, which is demonstrated on the following page. Mm. Um, but because of that, they look so much better than the initial versions that they would have come out with if it had been uh, on track for its initial release date. I, I want to read this quote. It's attributed to Shigeru Miyamoto, and I'm, I'm sure it's accurate. Uh, gets tossed uh, around a lot out there. A delayed game is eventually good, but a rush game is forever bad. So it really seems like they're they're feeling that here. Where it's like, we'll we'll give it the time, and it'll be better for it. And the other thing that uh, was good about their schedule slip is that they ended up uh, being bookended by the start of the Dragon Ball Kanzenban comics mm. coming out. Yeah, as well as the Dragon Ball uh, the Dragon Box DVD sets. So. Uh, they were right smack dab in the middle of this major revival of interest in Dragon Ball. And so... Yeah, we always said, like, oh, it's so well coordinated. You got the Konzenban, you got the new console video games coming out, Dragon Box material. Like, no, that was just coincidence because it took so long to make the game. Yeah, e exactly. It's like, wow, this is so well planned out. But no, it was just complete <laughs> happenstance. That's great. And and he laughs. <laughs> Perhaps because of that, it was a really big seller. But And of course, it sold well in Japan. But what really uh, surprised the people at, at Bandai mm -hmm. at the time was how well it sold outside of Japan. And uh, because of um, their their outside distributors' uh, demands, they they made an English version as well. Mm. But uh, they figured, you know, it's just you know a bonus on top of whatever they sold in Japan. But it ended up sell selling something like 
three million copies. Yeah. Uh, so they were, it, it, it made him weak in the knees and he just really, uh, was reminded, uh, just how amazing Dragon Ball is. Yeah. So just to put that number in context. So, I mean, the vast majority of Dragon Ball games up to this point were exclusive to Japan. Uh, some games get European localizations, things like, uh, legends on PlayStation Saturn, uh, maybe just the Saturn version. I forget where that fell in Europe. Some things here and there, you know, we got Final Bout here in America, limited run, you know, how expensive that was for a long time. Uh, I want to say the best-selling game previously was the first Super Butoden on Super Famicom that had a little over a million sales in Japan. At like the height of Super Famicom awesomeness. And now they're building this grand new console game. Oh, and we're going to do international distribution. Three million. Oh. Yes. Uh, so... In a way, he says, you could say that uh, for Bandai, Goku blazed a trail in their yeah. um, in their overseas business. Nice. And the overseas business, you know, we've been following Bandai Namco and their financial reports forever at this point, dating back to these days. They were consistently in the PS2 generation calling out America and Europe. It's like, this is where all these games are selling. And th- this started it right here. Yeah. And um, it, it's I guess at that point that they realized, hey, uh, I guess we should concentrate more on our overseas market. <laughs> this is the thing. Let's do it. And then uh, the the fi- final part of the of the interview is going over the 3D cell shading, which was a new concept at the time. Yeah. And he said that um, it came out of uh, their trying to find a way to make it feel more like Dragon Ball. And um, that's what they came up with. Unfortunately, at the time, there wasn't a lot of in- information about that sort of thing, even overseas. So it was uh, a lot of hard work. So they'd actually have to make like three different versions of the character, mm. three different shaded, and sort of combine those to to express that kind of shading. Gotcha. Yeah, and, and Budokai 1 is... is- different looking yeah. than the the following games you can really see this is where it started and they figured out where they wanted to go after this yes with uh with dragon ball z2 budokai 2 yeah and so it was three times the work and three times the cost <laughs> uh well but, you got three times the sales so all right yes yeah but and and uh the playstation 2 didn't actually have that capability built in so mm. so it was all stuff that they had to do themselves got it so it was especially hard but uh, it was like night and day. This looked so much better. Yeah. So um, in the end, it, because, just because of the cool factor, they had to do it. Nice. It didn't nice. matter. And of course, it sold well enough. You know? Right, right. Um, they, they had no choice. And um, he, if he does say so himself, the uh, ultimate uh, completed version of that in Dragon Ball Z3 holds up even today. Yes. <laughs> a, little, a little bit of bragging there. No, I, I think he's... Uh... He's, he's not in the wrong there. <laughs> On the uh, opposing page here, we have some cool production stuff. Uh, something I'm just tickled to see. So the Japanese box art for Budokai mm-hmm. 1, Dragon Ball Z, yeah. has uh, just a very cool shot. I want to say that it's either Nakatsuru himself or someone very purposefully going for his style. I don't know. I'm just it, trying to see. I don't think it, it says in It here, doesn't it actually is. say yeah. who did it. But the point that they make here is uh, actually... Goku was drawn in full. It's a full body shot, uh, even though the final cover is only kind of like the bust up of Goku. But here we have the the full design. It, it's super cool. His, yeah. his belt is blowing in the wind, just that glare. It's great. It's, it's a nice angle, yeah. So it looks pretty cool. And then they show off the the work they did on refining the 3D 
uh, polygonal models, and mm. it, it really looks so much better in the final version. It does. It does. <laughs> There's like, some uh, commercial and promotional stuff here as well, too. Yes. Um, so they have some uh, magazine advertisements, which I believe we may even have some in old copies of V Jump. <laughs> Absolutely. Over here. Yeah. But uh, this sense of speed with characters like Frieza and Cell and tell who that. I think that's probably is. Gohan. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, which which looks pretty cool. And then the very minimalist approach for some posters, which is on a white background, you have sketches of the eyes of uh, various characters like Frieza and Cell and either Super Saiyan Goku or Vegeta. Yeah. And um, you were saying there that it had been a while since Dragon Ball had kind of been in the public consciousness. So yes. this was like, hey, it's, it's these like, characters. Yes, it's like fanning the anticipation among people, getting the message out there. Yeah. And they have a couple of concepts for ads that they didn't use. One of them is just a close-up of someone's hands in black and white doing the uh, doing the uh, pose for the Kamehameha. And the other one is uh, a mock quiz. It's like, fill in the box for the missing part. And it shows a bowl of rice connected over by a horizontal line <laughs> to the missing part and yeah. then a line going down towards a loaf of bread. And, of course, the answer is a, a devil because it's Gohan and Videl right. makes Pan. Who is, is not in this game at all. Right. So <laughs> Maybe that's why. But they, they really were focusing on ideas that would purposely create an impact, like mm. really strike people with idea nice nice so from the dragon ball z budokai series we go to the dragon ball z sparking series uh western audiences may know this as the budokai tenkaichi budokai tenkaichi series uh julian we are joined here in the 30th anniversary book by ryo mito yes he's right here in our hands yes. in the book. <clears throat> yes, Joe Mito is a producer at Bandai Namco Entertainment. He was, uh, in addition to the Sparking series, he also worked on Burst Limits and Raging Blast, as well as a ton of other stuff. Yep. So he, he's uh, talking about uh, why they came up with the idea for the Sparking series as well. Um, Daisuke Uchiyama supervised the um, um, Budokai, Bud- Budokai yep. series, Dragon Ball Z series. And it, it was felt that they had basically reached the culmination of that with the third game. And, you know, there's nowhere else to go for that. So they needed to um, try something different and make a new series. And that was the genesis of the Sparking series. And um, since the 2D battles had reached basically such uh, a level of completeness in the Budokai series, they felt like this time what they uh, they should make their primary theme, the idea of fighting on a 3D plane. Uh, and that would be really cool to see. He had this idea of that Dragon Ball battle. The really cool part of it is in this sort of unbroken string of mm. attacks. You'd have like kicking your opponent away, then chasing after them at high speed and kicking them into the ground. And just, just that sort of fluid yeah, yeah. extension and not just punch, kick. You know? Right. And, you know, a combo in a 2D field would be that punch, 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 kick, energy blast. And that makes sense on a 2D field, but if you're going to be in 3D, there should be that sense of motion and fluid motion connecting you between attacks and also between distances. Right. And so that's the system that they decided to use for the Sparking series. It goes into a little bit about why they chose the name Sparking for the well, series, which we're obviously not <laughs> the, the, the American release but it's hysterical because it's an english word and we didn't get the english title over here instead we got a japanese title in reversed word order but anyway so there are some uh, potential titles that they had uh thought about using in pre-production yes so for example they originally initially it was planned on super senshi gekitouden which is super warrior 
fierce battle yeah, legend yeah. if you go word by word. It sure they, sounds like a Famicom era Dragon Ball game title if I ever heard one. Yep. And what they have on their design document is Ultimate Evolution, which is not a translation of that. It's another name that I guess they had for it at one point. Mm. So, yeah, uh, obviously that's not the name they went with it. But um, in particular, Super Senshi Gekitoden sounds very similar to other games that had been released in the past, which mm. I'm thinking of. They're probably thinking of the Super Butoden series. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they, in order to, you know, um, distinguish it from previous games, they wanted to have something, um, a word that would really remind you of Dragon Ball. And, uh, and after thinking on it for all sorts of things, they came upon the last word that Hironobu Kageyama says in the opening theme for Dragon Ball Z, which is, of course, Chala Hechara, which is sparking. And uh, they felt that was really impressive, and uh, they ended up using that. And of course, because we didn't get that theme in the English-speaking world, it doesn't mean anything to English-speaking fans, which is probably why they changed it. Not that Budokai Tenkaichi means anything to them, or meant anything to them at the time. Right. I think they're more familiar with it now than they would have been back then. Yeah, and I think at the time they were going with, oh, well, now we've already introduced them to the word Budokai, so let's take that a little bit, and go, even though it's a totally different developer, totally different game series. And the weird thing is the uh, the Sparking series uses new orchestrations of the Kikuchi score which we also didn't get over here right. and so the first sparking <laughs> was the weirdest of them all where it reused old budokai music in its replacement score even though it was not part of the same game series right and then neo and meteor two and three got entirely new japanese composed scores replacing the kikuchi music it was bizarre yeah <laughs> all right but that's not it's in here that's mess. just context for how it was produced all right let's go yes on. and of course the next part also does not make particular sense from the English speaking uh, <laughs> market. But uh, in the Japanese versions, they were not called uh, Sparking 2 and 3, but right. Sparking Neo and then Sparking Meteor. And uh, the reason why they didn't go with straight numbering on these is because if you put two on a sequel, then, well, you know, people who didn't play the first one, maybe they would feel uncomfortable getting into it or they might think it's hard for them. Or I missed something. I can't just jump in here. We see that with right? games still to this day where they'll avoid putting a number on it and they'll subtitle it instead. Right. <clears throat> so in, 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 in do, instead of that, they made it neo which of course means new in greek hmm. um and then for the third one well what comes after neo <laughs> <laughs> so uh they ultimately went with meteor because the word uh, was used in uh super butoden for the meteor smash mm -hmm. and it really <clears throat> portrays a, a great uh scale and force that they felt was uh emblematic for the series mm. And um, then they go into why the character roster is so goddamn huge. <laughs> As the um, Dragon Ball Z, uh, the Budokai series went on, they kept adding characters. Right. And of course, it would be sad if the character roster went down just because they started a new series. So from the outset, they planned on having um, 80 characters. And then the next one, well, if, uh, that wouldn't be that surprising if they just added a few characters. So they went straight to 120 and thought that would make an impression. And then for the third one, it jumped to 100 over 160 and they really just felt that they had to go above and beyond people's expectations on the opposite page here it says uh, initially they're going for 150 and then by the end it was over 160 too so yeah. even their own plans kind of changed as they went on here and, uh, and then they get into the what if stories and sparking meteor uh mm. budokai tenkaiji 3 
Mm. Um, and they said, well, um, one of the things that is um, something you can't experience anywhere else besides the games is the ability to experience the, uh, the original series vicariously through the game. And they wanted to be able to have people in, enjoy something like that. And the only thing is, uh, in order to get people to accept it, they had to be very careful. So they really worked hard to come up with these what-if scenarios. And <clears throat> one, one thing that was advantageous is because they had so many characters in the game, it was very easy to create scenarios where characters who would norm, not normally come face-to-face got to meet up. Oh, so you're saying that because it, they throw Arale with kind of like anyone and because it's so bizarre it's more acceptable because this would never happen right okay and so that that they felt that would be fun so they really worked hard to do things like that nice so having these characters come face to face even though they were not actually supposed to Right. In the story itself. So it's easy for them to create one of scenarios like that. In terms of the uh, fan response, uh, they it was very positive. In Japan, it was, uh, for example, called Kamige, uh, which is a godly game. Mm-hmm. Or, or even Kamige wo koeta daikaioshinge, which is like a daikaioshin uh, dai game that surpasses even a godly game. God, the hyperbole is for the sparking yes. series is there in Japan as it is over here. Yep. Uh, and um, although the Dragon Ball Z, the Budokai series was also well received uh, because there's a different way of uh, enjoying it in this one, they felt like that was also appreciated. Mm. So because it was so different, it was its own thing. So it managed to distinguish itself that way. Got it. And that is that. We want to talk about some of these secret files over here as well. Yeah, yeah. We already touched on some of the uh, potential titles, like Ultimate Evolution, actually written in our alphabet that they didn't end up using. Uh, what else are they showing off here? Sparking 2 was a potential title before they renamed it? Yeah, so they ended up going with uh, the with the name instead of a number because mm. of the reasoning that, they, that I mentioned. And also, this is the Wii version that is showing here, and it's showing off some of the unique controls that you could use with the Wiimote. Right. And then uh, there's also different terminology in places because they hadn't really decided on what to call stuff. And then um, at the bottom, uh, the design document for Sparking Meteor, it actually was Sparking Meteor from the outset. By that point, yeah, yeah. But they initially had 150 characters planned and then it went over 160. And then at the bottom, you just see a few um, posters showing off the pre-release items of which you have all of them here, Mike. I do. I have all three. I pre-ordered the, uh, sparking series. So at that point I had my Japanese PS2, which I got, uh, for the Japanese release of Dragon Ball Z three. And by that point I just bought all the PS2 games in Japanese, uh, from that point forward. So I was pre-ordering them. So the, the first sparking is a little, uh, pen in a capsule. You click the top as if you were going to go bon on it. It's a pen. I think they also had that as one of the things that came out around the time of Battle of Gods. I'm sure they must have reused the yeah, design. Yeah, probably the same mold and everything. Uh, and then for Neo, it's a little uh, attack ball clock, which is very cute, which I don't think I've ever used for anything, but <laughs> it's there. And then for Meteor, it's a little Shenlong ornament, which uh, I take out at Christmas time. Yes, it calls it a keychain on this, which yeah. is probably what it's originally probably. meant for. But, but from a Westerner's perspective, this, this would make a good Christmas ornament, right? Exactly. Yeah, I don't want to break it in my pocket or anything. So Right? Yeah, yeah that's how Jacko died. <laughs> my my Jocko from my super elite edition of Jocko the Galactic Patrolman wore out after I used him as a keychain like he was supposed to. Oh, where's mine? Might be in the box up there when that came in. I don't know. Uh, so that's the Sparking series. 
The fifth of the game interviews seems to focus on Xenoverse, uh, in some ways coming off of Dragon Ball Online. Uh, Julian, who's chatting here? So this is Masayuki Hirano, who is the producer of Dragon Ball Xenoverse, and uh, he's part of uh, Bandai Namco Entertainment. It, I'm not familiar with this game, but he, is, uh, he was working on Shinra Bansho Frontier and also Dragon Ball Extreme Butoden, which we are aware of. Okay, sounds yeah. good. Th- there are some really cool designs on the opposite page, and maybe we'll get to those in a little bit. Like some of the previous ones, the, the text isn't super long, but it seems like there's some good tidbits in here. What's he chatting about? Yes, so it's talking a- about um, how they came up with the idea of Xenoverse and also um, the way that Dragon uh, Dragon Ball Online influenced them and how they came up with some of their own ideas as well. Okay. So um, he starts out by uh, talking about how up till that point, um, a lot of the um, the 3D fighting games are based on the principle of you get to fight as Goku and it's going to recreate the series itself. <laughs> right, it's taboo, let's go. Exactly. So what they wanted to do was um, something different, maybe present a different side of their love for Dragon Ball. Mm. Um, So that's how they um, started their uh, project for the game. And um, also there was Dragon Ball Online, which was the uh, online PC game that was... um, Uh, ran in uh, both uh, South Korea and Taiwan from uh, 2010 to 2013. There was a lot of material that uh, Toriyama either drew or uh, added to the mythos or personally oversaw. And um, there was also a lot of stuff that hadn't seen the light of day yet. So they really um, wanted to um, bring that to what they're good at, which is the home game console, and uh, get a chance to use it for, um, for something like that. Nice. He also talks about how the avatar was a central idea to their uh, game concept so that you get to create your own avatar as though uh, you're entering the world of Dragon Ball and also that once you make an avatar, you want to show it off. So naturally you have the online lobby concept where you and other people's avatars get a chance to interact with each other. Yeah, you walk around, there's emotes and you can challenge and sure. Oh, absolutely. I, I really enjoyed personally seeing like people doing the goofy poses, like getting together. Yeah, doing the game. Uh, absolutely. To me, and not having played the game directly, that's like the best part. Yeah. yeah. Watching how, how ridiculous people can make their avatar and then right. move off. <laughs> the crazy combinations and then poses that don't belong together, but why not? So um, <clears throat> starting from uh, that point they came up with the idea of you personally being able to change the world of dragon ball except they realized that there would be some fans out there who would not perhaps appreciate that Mm. because the story is the story sure um so what they ended up doing was having the main character basically set right what has been changed for the worse by the the bad guys guys so they can have their cake and eat it too here yes And uh, they were always keeping in mind that uh, the idea that the more you know about uh, Dragon Ball, the more surprising Mm. uh, the contents would be. But they didn't want to go too far, so they were very careful about that. And they... um, they created a lot of ideas in in the planning phase that ended up being rejected. Mm. Because after all, if you just always have the uh, main character rushing in and everybody's lying on the ground like Yamcha, it kind of devalues Goku and the others. Oh, okay. I was going to say it devalues just the same situation over and over, but okay, they don't want to devalue Goku at the same time. All right. Right. (laughs) 
It's like, oh man. That I guess is. congratulations, your original character is Mary Sue. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say that in the interview, but that's my impression of it. And there's also original material that actually wasn't part of Dragon Ball Online. Um they they mentioned that Mira Toa and the was it the Time Nest? Is yeah, that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, are all elements that were taken uh from Dragon Ball Online. But uh Tokitoki City mm-hmm. and Tokitoki Yep, the bird itself, and also Demigra were uh, original material for Xenoverse, right? And also the design for the Kaioshin of Time. If I'm not mistaken, I think she was part of Dragon Ball Online, but she may have looked different, or, uh, or she might have been. I think referenced, maybe not shown. Okay, something like that. Yeah, but um, that that design is original, and they had Toriyama oversee her design, mm. and they made a lot that were rejected before they finally settled on the final <laughs> one, which you can see on the opposite page. Right, and we're actually at a point now. I don't remember all the context for it, but uh, as we get into Dark Demon Realm mission and into Universe mission, I believe Chronoa, as they've called her, uh, does have a transformed, more adult form. You know, as we look here on uh, the opposite page in the secret files, there are some extra designs for people, and uh, we'll talk about those in a second. A- anything else mentioned in the interview here that's worth noting? So they're also just talking about how uh, in summer of 2015 they had this worldwide Tenkaichi Budokai. Um, mm. Dragon Ball Xenoverse tournament. Right. And <clears throat> they had something like 40,000 people participating in it. And um, Hirano himself was also in it and managed to win all 20 matches. But what really uh, impressed him is that uh, during the event, he got something like a thousand uh, comments from North America. And at the end, uh, he uh, the production staff said, thank you very much and good night. And uh, and from the users, they they had a lot of responses like, oh, thank you very much for giving us such excitement over the past seven months. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. And um, they were really impressed by that. And they thought, you know, this is the kind of interaction that they couldn't get with past Dragon Ball games. Yeah. Yeah. And you just um, deliver a product and that's that. And you might have tournaments, even worldwide tournaments, but something like this where it is online, you're directly back and forth with feedback here. Right. And this particular time they had, um, you know, the number one in each region Mm -hmm. become representative. But he thinks that in the future, which at this point is several years on and maybe (laughs) they have, it'd be great to just have like an entire worldwide tournament tournament. Yeah. People playing against people from everywhere, you know. That'd be very cool, yeah. So I don't know what they've done recently. I mean, Dragon Ball Fighters has sort of entered the esports world and become a thing unto itself. Yeah, so yeah. they even uh, have a they even have a comic running in Psycho Jump about <laughs> right. fighters as an esport. Uh, Xenoverse does have uh, ongoing tournament stuff, like in game events. Uh, I don't really follow it at this point, but. Uh, maybe that's tied into it, an extension of what they wanted to do there, yeah. We mentioned the Kronoa images. Just looking at them there, it's... First of all, you can see people trying to get Toriyama's style, and then by the final design, you're like, yeah, that that's him. For, that's him personally, for sure. Yeah. The first ones are maybe a little bit too, like... Too sexy. Yeah, and, and a little bit too, like, generic video game heroine style. And that's how Demigra feels on, on the villain side of things, actually, his final design. I, I felt like he always looked like a rejected Dragon Quest boss, but... Yeah, well, it, at least he, you know, actually looks like Toriyama design in the end. I suppose. Because, yeah, at the, at the early stages, this is definitely not. 
something that uh, I noticed uh, a couple months ago when I was flipping through the book here is that we actually have some early designs for Demigra here. Uh, one of the designs ended up being effectively reused as is for, I never remember how to say his name, Michi Kabura? Michi, Michi Kabura? Michi Kabura, yeah. Yeah, and I don't actually remember. He's the old looking one with the, the staff there, oh, all okay. the way on the left, yeah. Dark Demon Realm stuff over in... Oh, expanded okay. lore, yeah. So even with this kind of stuff, the, just because they didn't use the design right away, it may come back around again at some point. Maybe, yeah. Uh, it's interesting to see the um, initially the the concept they had for Toki Toki was very much an actual crested ibis. <laughs> it looks like a real bird, right? And then gradually they they made it into like a little tiny cute bird, and then they made it into the long sort of pseudo feather beard. Mm. Final version. Oh, uh, I should mention that Toki means both time and crested ibis in Japanese, which is the pun. Right. It's pretty good. How about the uh, Toki Toki City, the time nest area, the, everything that they're showing here? It's a pretty nice illustration. Yeah, actually, it kind of feels like uh, very much a Toriyama-inspired cosmos, and you have like the snake, what is it, the serpent road that we call it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's 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 interesting, all the different elements in there. It doesn't quite feel like something Toriyama would have on his own, but it incorporates a lot of Toriyama-esque elements. Yeah. So that wraps up the game interview series in the 30th anniversary book. There's so much good stuff in here. I know, it's amazing. It's just little tidbits here and there, stuff uh, we've never seen before, like the pre-production materials with the name changes and behind-the-scenes info. I love it. Yeah, it's great. So a lot of this, uh, I'm using this as an opportunity to flesh out some skeleton-ish pages in the wiki of Konsenchu coming at some point in the undetermined near-ish future. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we work on Konsenchu time frame, so near future could be one year, it could be 10 years. Who knows? We'll still be here doing everything we do. So stay tuned for that. But uh, you think at some point you want to translate these formally for the website as well, too. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's just a great uh, opportunity for us. You know, look through them, talk about them. That serves as that good basis for doing the formal translation later. Absolutely. Having read through it and talked about it, I sort of have an idea in my head of how I want to phrase things. So nice. it really comes in handy and it uh, gives me a, an excuse to actually finish it. Because <laughs> we've, we've had the 30th anniversary book for several years now. And like, exactly. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. It's just that I've got a lot of stuff going on right now. It's good for me is I get to reuse the same content like three times. So Awesome. <laughs> All right. So that's going to wrap up our episode here. www.kanzenshuu. Dot com that is comesandshoe.com that was Julian over here I am Mike over there uh, Julian thanks for hanging out again uh, you know, we're following up New York Comic Con I'm glad you're able to come down and if you're going to be here get on that microphone absolutely alright so uh, why don't you wrap it up for us here at Kanzenshu the podcast Kanzenshu the podcast